This is the Coleman Associate Innovation Podcast. Innovation? Yeah, innovation. New, original, and creative. This podcast is designed to challenge the way you think about how healthcare is delivered. Ladies and gentlemen, the captain has turned on the fasten seatbelt sign. If you haven't already done so, please take your seat and fasten your seatbelt. I'm your host, Ryan Jury. We are about to explore practical solutions and hear about how out-of-reach results are obtained. Happy New Year! We're back kicking off 2020 with a new episode. I'm your host of the Leadership Series, Amanda Laramie, and I'm so excited to bring you this episode with Amy Feimer. Amy Feimer is a CEO, and she is the CEO of Hunter Health, which is an organization located in Wichita, Kansas. It's a federally qualified health center and an urban Indian health program. They have three locations. And one of the reasons I'm excited is because Amy recently co-presented with me at a NAC conference. NAC stands for National Association for Community Health Centers. And we were in Chicago in October, and did a presentation about what Hunter Health accomplished and got so much positive feedback that afterwards I asked Amy to record a podcast interview with us. Um, So one thing you should know about Amy is that her background is actually in banking. So she doesn't have a healthcare background like most of us. She, She was in banking. One of the things I would encourage you to listen for in this episode is how to improve provider satisfaction, staff satisfaction. I think Hunter Health tells a great story in that regard, as well as how to lower abandoned call rates. So let's get started so you can hear from Amy. Amy, welcome to the show. We're so happy to have you. I'd like to just dive in and start by having you tell us what are some of the major things you've been working on at Hunter Health since you started four years ago. Well, I would say um, it could probably be narrowed down to saying getting systems in place across the organization. Uh And that is financial systems, HR systems, clinical workflow systems, Mm -hmm. clinical quality systems. It's really, it's across all of the areas, just making sure that we truly have a well-defined intentional system in place to ensure the clinic runs smoothly, employees know how to do their jobs, And that we have defined what that looks like Mm -hmm. and been very intentional about what that looks like. And do you think some of your systems background came from what you did before? Or like, why are you so focused on systems? I suspect a little bit is nature and that Mm -hmm. I've just got Mm -hmm. that mindset and understanding. I do think a lot of it is having seen good systems in place. I worked for an organization for a number of years that was very systems focused. I could see the benefit of the systems and the outcomes that you achieve when you get good systems in place. Mm -hmm. I also, in my banking career, worked as a relationship manager who would meet with businesses of all sizes, all industries. And when I saw high performing organizations, regardless of the size, regardless of the industry, it really came down to their systems and mm-hmm. being systems focused. Mm, okay. So tell us how you met Coleman Associates. Well, um, our organization's first introduction to Coleman was through our chief clinical operations officer who went to a NAC training. Mm-hmm. I think she went three years ago. And she came back and talked about some of the 
systems that you guys put in place, like jockeying the schedule. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, she was very excited and very um, inspired by what she learned. There was just a challenge in getting more people on board. Mm-hmm. And for me as a new um, CEO and new to clinics in general, healthcare in general, I couldn't fully understand what was being um, presented and recommended. And so I brought it back to the executive team and we discussed the opportunity. And at that point, because we kind of had, um, we were seeing good results in some other areas of the clinic, but we Uh weren't really making progress in some of those clinical workflow areas. Mm I think that everyone felt like it was time to bring in the outside expertise and see what we could do with that. And when you say everyone was on board at that point, because I think that's an important um, point to bring up before you undergo big transformation in your workflows is everyone has to be on board. Um, Everyone was, including your medical leadership or, you know, did that take time? Because we always counsel perspective uh, clinics to to make sure everyone's really on board with this? <laughs> well, I would say, actually, when we first discussed it and agreed to do it, the provider leadership mm-hmm. was not convinced that we needed someone from the outside. Yeah. They, they didn't necessarily disagree with the specific tactics. They mm-hmm. just felt that maybe we could do it ourselves. Sure. And the rest of the team, including the clinical operations leadership, felt strongly that we wouldn't be able to do it ourselves Mm -hmm. just because of some of the traditional conflict that you can get Mm -hmm. in the organization between provider and workflow Mm -hmm. and, and where that comes. Once we, you know, agreed to do it and Coleman was coming on board, I would say the leadership team was on board with the change. Okay. With working through the change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was still difficult, but they were on board with Mm -hmm. moving forward and engaging with Coleman. Do you recall what your goals were, what your major focus areas or key performance indicators, whatever you call them, were when you started? Like, where were you going to focus? Yeah, so the first one was our abandoned call rate, which okay. was very high, had historically been very high. And we really felt like it was creating multiple issues because we weren't able to take care of those calls when they first came in. The second one was our cycle time. Mm-hmm. It was well over an hour at mm-hmm. one of our clinics. I think it was over 70, 75 minutes, maybe more, mm. per, you know, on average. We um, we didn't even know how many patients per hour we were truly seeing. Okay. So that was something that came up. And we also knew one of the primary issues we were facing is that our providers were charting after hours. Mm. And we knew that was happening at night, during the week, and on the weekends. And while we didn't have hard data on how many hours they were doing that or how many days, the noise from the employees led us to believe that it was a significant critical issue. In terms of, you mentioned abandoned call rate. I pulled up your data. It waffled a bit. I think it could be as high as 34%, but definitely lower in some points around 25. Would you say that was about the baseline? Yes. Yes. 
Okay. Yeah, I'd say it was probably about 25 was the average. Okay, got it. 25%. Okay. You talked earlier about changing systems, putting in systems in place. What were some of the major systems changes you implemented, um, some with the help of Coleman, some on your own, um, in order to improve these these focus areas that you were concerned about? So I think when it comes to the abandoned calls rate, the biggest thing that proved to be successful for us was changing our definition of who was responsible for that rate. Mm. So prior to Coleman coming on site, we were really looking towards the business operations manager and the call center staff to cover the call volumes. Mm -hmm. And when Coleman came on site, you helped us leverage a calculator tool, the Erlang calculator, to see that during our peak times, there was just no way that the staff we had could handle that call volume on its own. That being said, we also didn't have high enough volume throughout the day to really warrant adding staff for those non-peak times. Mm -hmm. So we really looked to find ways to leverage other employees throughout the clinic Mm -hmm. to get them to be committed to get on the phones during those high peak times. So that included some people from our finance department, some people from the referrals department, our patient care coordinators, really just, you know, making this an organizational problem that needed an organizational solution. I just want to mention, you said the Erlang calculator. I love sharing this tool widely because it's free. It's super helpful. I was just going to give give people the link, Um, which when I looked it up, the link might have changed, but it's definitely, I think it's a UK tool just based on how they spell this URL. It's call center center spelled c-e-n-t-r-e helper.com and it has this great um free calculator where you can estimate how many calls you're receiving in what period of time and what your average handling time is like you know that your calls take two minutes or 90 seconds and how what your target answer time and then it'll spit out here's how many people you need answering the phones and i think your story is like so many others where you it was not consistently peak times it was when you opened your phone lines it was i think it was right before lunch if i remember correctly it was like yeah. right around the lunch hour and those were the heavy times where you needed a few extra people but not throughout the whole shift right and it was usually earlier in the week mm-hmm. except for mm-hmm. fridays and then on fridays we would end up with you know kind of another spike in calls. So it really varied. It wasn't the same number of people needed all week, which really illustrated for us the fact that this can't be solved by just staffing up because then we would have had excess capacity in the call center. Yep, absolutely. And that's funny about finding that even Friday was more of a peak time than other days. You think just before patients were going into the weekend, like trying to get things done? I think so. Yeah. Okay. You were just going to talk about some of your improvements to cycle time. So tell us what you did to improve cycle time. Cycle time was a little trickier, but I would say we saw some dramatic changes within a matter of like a day and a half once we started to get some of these new processes implemented. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest things we did there 
again, going back to creating systems, we created a workflow and a, it's called the team dance. It's the Coleman's workflow system that we had the, the care team start to use that was very prescribed in terms of who does what mm-hmm. and when does it happen and encouraging people to be very um, flexible and creative to make sure the patient keeps moving through the workflow. Mm -hmm. So some examples of the tactics we used with the team dance include designating the medical assistant as the shepherd of the team and implementing that sheep shepherd model, which really says you need one person to be in charge of workflow, to really be telling the others where to go, what to do next. And you need the others to really take the role of being the sheep. And up until making this change, our providers were trying to be the shepherd, which was creating a lot of conflict. It was creating frustration on their part because they'd be trying to take care of patients, but also looking at their schedule, figuring out where they needed to go. And then the other workflow change that we made was charting in real time. Okay. And this was something that It was interesting. A number of people didn't think we could do this because we're on a very old EHR platform. And there was a lot of, um, I guess, doubt that this would be successful. But we were successful. And it made a huge difference, again, in a very short amount of time. And that really came down to, first of all, setting the expectation that you have to finish your charting before you move on to the next patient. And then making sure that medical assistant, the shepherd, is managing the workflow to allow that to happen. So it's not unusual for the MA to tell the provider, nope, you have to finish your chart. You can't move on until you finish your chart. Mm. Or tell someone, nope, you can't talk to them right now. They're finishing their chart. Uh You can talk to them when they're done finishing their chart. So, I mean, we did a lot of changes as part of that team dance, and, and I'm happy to talk about more of them. But I think those two... Um, were probably the most significant and most impactful changes to help with the cycle time. And I feel like in addition to just helping with cycle time, it really helped with our employee engagement because every team had different expectations about who should be doing what, how they should be doing it. And so then if other team members fell short in meeting those expectations, which may or may not have ever been defined for them, most likely not defined, Mm -hmm. um, then everybody was frustrated. So the MA might be frustrated that the provider didn't seem to be happy with what they were doing. The provider might have been frustrated because they didn't think the MA was doing what they were supposed to be doing. So by putting in this very clearly defined workflow, we were telling people, this is your job. This is what you need to be doing to be successful. And they didn't have to worry about if they had to switch care teams for a day to support somebody while they were out of the office, Mm. that they'd have to adapt to that care team style. Uh So I think it had a huge employee engagement benefit. Okay. So you told me a lot there about what you set up um, systems wise for the team. So it sounds like number one, you had prescribed workflows. Number two, there were set expectations of each job role. So what the provider did versus what the MA did. Um, It sounds like a lot of that was giving people a picture of what success looked like, but what did you do data wise? 
Yeah, I mean, we implemented some very visible in the middle of kind of the care team workspace um, whiteboards where they tracked Mm -hmm. their session Mm -hmm. from start to finish. So they tracked whether they saw someone in um, in an open slot when the patient arrived, when they left. So they were tracking the cycle time. We tracked other components that could impact cycle time, like did they get labs done? Did Mm. they need an interpreter? Mm -hmm. Did they see behavioral health? Um, Anything else that might kind of contribute to that cycle time? We started to track missed opportunities, meaning Uh slots that we didn't fill, that were unfilled at the end of the session. And um, that really helped us get a better feel for how well were we using our capacity? So tell us about what some of the overall improvements were. You talked earlier about baseline cycle time being in over an hour, 70 minutes in some cases. Um, do you recall or do you know where it is now or where it is when you ended? Yes. So as of September 30th of this year, we were averaging 45 minutes for cycle time. So significant improvement. We have three sites and all three sites have the new workflows implemented and all three sites have seen their cycle time go down significantly. Awesome. And how about provider documentation? Are you measuring that or is it again, just knowing from providers they're not taking work home? How do you know? We are measuring that now. So it is part of the daily tracking that we do. And I would say it's like 99% of the time. It's very unusual for a provider to not finish their documentation during the session, if not before their the next appointment, which is really our standard. I mean, because what you're describing is not finishing, like doing it all at the end of the shift. They're they're doing it as they go. Right. In your case. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, I guess that's what I would prefer rather than having to block access after hours. I just want to be sure we're giving them the workflow and the system so that they don't even have to think about doing it after hours and mm-hmm. that, that never even becomes something they want to do. So you had talked about staff engagement scores prior to doing this. I think you said in 2017 and that you were in the 41st percentile. So tell me where you are with that now. Well, we had a significant change in 2018. We actually jumped up to the 80th percentile. Mm. And that was the largest year-over-year increase our survey firm had seen in at least their 15 years. They thought it could be um, the largest they'd seen in their 18-year history, but they weren't sure they had all the data to support that. (laughs) Uh So it was a significant jump. And It's attributable to a lot of things we were doing across the organization, but we definitely would not have been there without these changes because as with any health center, at least probably 80% of our staff are in the clinic workflow. Mm -hmm. And so improving the workflow for them makes a huge impact on the organization as a whole. We'd like to do something different and interrupt this interview for a quick Note about what's coming your way from Coleman. 
If you feel like you're ready to start making big transformation at your health center and you want some of that Coleman support you've been hearing about, there is only one month left to join our national DPI or Dramatic Performance Improvement Spring Cohort Collaborative. There's a few slots left and there's already eight health centers who've joined. They come to us from the West Coast and also the Midwest. And we're looking for a few other health centers who want to be part of this cohort. If you don't feel like you're ready now, there will be another opportunity in the fall. But if you want to get started right now, because there's no time like the present, um, email us at notify at colemanassociates.org. That's associates with an S. And we can help you get your leadership kickoff scheduled and completed by January 31st. I know that's not a lot of time, um, but if you're ready to go, we're ready to help you. Now back to the interview. You've sustained these metrics though for 18 months. And I'm sure beyond that too, just because of how we've seen you all as an organization keep these up. Um, I think that's a lot of people say, sure, we could go through the big change, make these changes, but the concern is sustainability. And so I guess my question for you as leading this effort is, what are some of the things to which you attribute your success? Like, how are you sustaining these changes over time? We've put in some validation systems. So validation is so important to maintaining any type of change. And there's daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly. It just depends on what we're looking at. But there's a schedule for who's validating, where they're validating, how frequent. Can you like define what validation means? Yeah, I would say validation is being really intentional about what behaviors you want to see and how you're going to demonstrate or document that you are seeing those behaviors. Okay. And so um, it might be. For example, for our daily huddles, we have a validation checklist, which you helped us with. Mm -hmm. And so there's certain key things that we're checking every time we validate a huddle. Did it start on time? Are the right people there? Did they end on time? Did they cover this topic? And so it it really encourages you as the leader to take time to say, what's the most important thing that I want to see happening Mm -hmm. and then make sure it truly is happening. Mm -hmm. And we have a couple of, um, we have an electronic system that we use to track goals and action plans for our goals. And one of the things we do track in it is validation. um, That is like validating behaviors that we think are important. So, for example, one of our standards is that leaders send at least one thank you note a month Mm -hmm. to an employee. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we could um, just use the honor system and say, yeah, we think everybody's doing it and everyone thinks it's a great idea and, and everything, you know, is probably working the way we think it could be working. But that assumption is probably wrong. And so actually putting in a formal way of tracking that and measuring it Mm -hmm. increases compliance. And again, just to try to remind people that this is our system. This is how we do things. We're going to be making sure this happens. And we, we do slip. So I have a few questions about what you just described. So in documenting your process, were these 
like policies and procedures you wrote up or were they in job descriptions? Tell me a little more about how you documented them. Um, they were definitely the policies and procedures. I'm okay. not sure it's gotten to the job description level, but okay. I do think that's a good idea is uh-huh. to make sure that the job description matches the workflow. Because one thing that's so critical with the medical assistant being the shepherd is you really have to hire and or coach your medical assistants to take on a role that may not be comfortable for them. Yeah. So if they're going to have to start telling the providers where to go and what to do, and maybe, no, you can't do that right now. It's going to take a certain personality to be able to do that, given the traditional deferential hierarchical role that most medical assistants were trained in and educated in. So I think getting that, getting those skills and behaviors clearly defined in job descriptions is a great idea and something that we'll look to do. Yeah. And I mean, that's such a good point about hiring differently. I mean, if you're training MAs as shepherds, and like you said, having the personality and the gumption to say to the provider, no, you can't go in that room yet until you finish that note. um, It definitely means hiring differently. And so even if you don't have them in the job descriptions yet, do you feel like you are hiring differently when you have open MA positions? I would say so, because we've definitely seen, um, I I think we've definitely seen that the people who are coming in demonstrate that behavior. And we do behavior-based interviewing. So Mm. I'm pretty sure that kind of the questions that are being asked are getting to the heart of that. And, you know, I'm sure early on that expectation is being set right away. And so it's not, and the MAs coming in, their care team is ready for that. So it's not Mm -hmm. as difficult as the care teams we were working with initially with this change who had to adapt while maybe the care team providers were feeling some angst and not embracing the change easily. And, you know, we did have a lot of turnover um, between 2017 and 2018. And I do think that that reflects the fact that we were transforming our culture And I do think that there were many employees who saw this change coming and decided it was not a good fit for them and Mm -hmm. um, and opted to leave the organization, which is fine. And what we wanted, it's we'd rather work with people who embrace the change and are going to help us, you know, move forward with it. Yeah. And that's one of the painful things about going through any big change in an organization. I mean, ultimately, your data is proving it's successful, but it it still must be hard when you have turnover to then fill the slots, even if it's turnover you think is ultimately a good thing. Right. Yes. And it can be perceived by people on the ground as, you know, we're losing valuable people. Sure. Which is true. Yeah. Yeah, we still need the right people to move the organization forward. Yep. Amy, I mean, I'm going to ask this in a little bit of a leading way, just because I've seen you lead your own staff meetings and your team to review data. (laughs) But um, I guess I want other people to know how well you do in leading your team to look at data, look at validation. So describe for us how you do that in some of your um, key leadership check-ins when you're looking at these metrics? Mm -hmm. 
Well, we are, um, I think becoming very data focused has been a transition for the organization. And when I first started, there was no data being okay. captured or reported. Yeah. And so the first step was just to start getting data reported mm-hmm. so that we had access to it. And then, you know, once that was happening a little bit more organically and at a greater rate, then it's become transitioning to figure out how to use the data. Okay. So we do in our leadership meetings, always look at our results, always look at the data and you know, my area of focus when I'm leading those conversations or helping facilitate those conversations is really to be sure we're focused on systems and not people. Mm. I think too often people um, lean back towards blaming a person in the process yeah. or blaming a department as mm-hmm. opposed to looking at the system. And mm-hmm. so trying to coach people to focus on like what is really going on and making sure we go back to the data and then looking at what the system is that's contributing to that. And I would say it's still a work in progress. You know, we still have situations where people quote unquote, quote, feel like something is happening for a certain way or something is happening in general. And it, you know, it goes back to, well, is that true? What does the data tell us? And making sure we're really making decisions based off of data and not based off of feelings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, from, I don't know how familiar you are with the Myers-Briggs, um, we found in looking at data that a lot of providers, a lot of staff who go into healthcare tend to be more feelings oriented, like they score as an F instead of a T um, in the Myers-Briggs. And so I think that shift to looking at data can be difficult. And I'm curious if you have any advice for other organizations or how you navigate those lines between um, people who are more just feelings focused as they are as humans, but moving into a data-driven culture. Well, I again, I think that's where if you have the data, you can maybe point to alleviating some of the feelings. Mm. I think what's important, though, and, you know, I am a strong T, so I have mm-hmm. to keep this in mind all mm-hmm. the time. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, the feelings are valid and yeah. real. Yeah. And so even though the data may say something may disprove what they what they are saying the problem is. Mm-hmm. I think the burden is still on the leader to figure out, well, what is the problem? So we, we're dealing with that right now where our providers, we've started to double book under certain scenarios mm-hmm. where we feel that it's highly likely we're going to have a no-show mm-hmm. in a spot because maybe the person is a chronic no-show patient Maybe we just haven't been able to get a hold of them and confirm. Mm -hmm. Whatever the case may be, we have certain criteria where we will double book. Mm -hmm. And the providers are very upset. They feel like they are being overbooked too much. They feel that it's not working, that it's just creating a lot of problems. Mm -hmm. And so they actually want data on overbooking. Mm -hmm. And so... 
we were kind of talking about it the other day. And meanwhile, you have the clinical operations team who is saying, we are rarely overbooking you. You're not getting overbooked as much as you feel you are. Mm. This isn't true. And, Mm -hmm. you know, my perspective is that maybe overbooking isn't the problem, but at the end of the day, they still feel like something's not working well. And so, yes, we can look at the data and show that really you're not getting a lot of overbooking. So that's not the issue, but then you can't just leave it there. You still have to try to work with the team and figure out. So what is it that creates this stress and this burden and this feeling that overbooking is the issue so that we can still resolve that issue. So I think it's a matter of, you know, how do you acknowledge the feelings and respect the feelings? And then maybe it's not the data you think it is, but still going back to looking at data to figure out what is the root cause of that feeling and that that issue. That makes sense. So Amy, just we're coming to the end of our interview. I guess my last question for you is what advice do you have for other leaders who are leading significant change efforts similar to what you're leading at Hunter? So I would say that change is a normal part of business and it's something that people are going to have to manage through and manage through it effectively to be successful and competitive in this environment. Mm -hmm. And that will be normal forever. We use a tool that I think is really useful. Mm -hmm. It's um, if you Google managing complex change by Ambrose, A like Apple, M like Mary, B like boy, R O S like Sam E. Uh It walks through the different stages of change from vision to skills, to incentives, resources, action planning. And then it highlights how people are going to feel during, Mm. if something is missing during Mm. those stages. Mm. So for example, if um, the team feels confused as you're managing through change, you haven't done a good job of setting and communicating your vision. Mm. If you see gradual change, you haven't done a good job making sure you have appropriate incentives in place to get Mm. people to move along. If people are anxious, maybe they don't have the skills and the training that they need to be successful in this new environment. Mm. So I think it's important to recognize that managing change is a skill and it requires a lot of work at different times. And so I always go back to this tool. I refer to it with my executive team all the time because we'll be going through some sort of project and people will start to communicate how people are feeling about it. And it helps to know that's a normal feeling during change. And that if you go back and work your way back, you can figure out where do you, where do you need to put your focus to kind of overcome that phase and move on to the next. Oh, perfect. Thank you for sharing the tool. I'm sure many people will find that helpful. Um, Thank you, Amy, so much for doing this interview with us, sharing your wisdom, sharing your experience. I do have to give you um, public kudos for how well you do run your meetings with your team, how much you focus on data. It's very evident that you're leading the charge there. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we finish up? I don't think so. I think I've shared everything I can think of for now. Okay, great. Thank you so much. 
I so appreciate Amy sharing Hunter Health Systems with us, as well as the processes they use to make a health center organization like theirs a truly engaging place to work. Thank you for joining us, Amy. I also want to thank Jonathan at Bionic Squid for all of his help editing this episode and Ryan Jury for letting me join him in hosting this podcast. Thanks, Ryan. Next time, we hear from another director at Hunter Health, Caitlin Boger. But this time, we're talking about mental health delivery. If you're interested in how to move towards the future of healthcare with a rather radical and new model of behavioral health, then this will be the episode for you. Don't forget to subscribe so you can tune in next time.